In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Garrett. I'm one of the pastors here at Delray Baptist, and we're thankful to have you with us uh, this morning. When Christians all around the world for some 2,000 years have been celebrating uh, the fact that Jesus did indeed die, but he didn't stay dead like everybody else who dies, but he actually came out of the grave alive. And we bank everything on that being true. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to go through a passage of scripture that talks about that, that helps us understand why that is so important. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 28. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, as Josh said earlier, page 961 on the Bibles uh, that are provided for you in that pew rack in front, it'll help you to to follow along, um, just to make sure I'm not lying and um, keep me honest, but also to see where this stuff comes from. I'm not just making this up. So that'll be a good spot for you to hunker down in for the next little bit while we get into it. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray once more, ask God for his help in both the preaching and the receiving of his word. So pray with me once more. Father, we come to you again, praying again, because we have been, by your grace, made aware of how much we need you. We can't figure life out apart from you, and we need you to tell us the truth. We're down here trying to figure out things on our own, and we don't do well, and we need you to shine light into the darkness. So we pray that now you would work the supernatural miracle of helping us to understand but not just understand intellectually, but to believe from the heart the things that you say. God, would you make things clear for us today? Would you help me to say only things that are true and are helpful? And would you help all of us, including me, to receive this in such a way that it would transform our lives, uh, that, would, that would produce a love that would, that would help others and bless others and bring you the honor and the glory that you deserve. We pray you would do this for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, as way of introduction, let's talk about Thomas Jefferson for just a second, okay? So uh, if you know anything about Thomas Jefferson, you know he's probably, he was one of the, the founding fathers of the United States. You know, he was the first secretary of state. He was one of the primary authors of the Declaration of Independence. He was third president. Uh, he helped fi- found the University of Virginia, which I, as a Virginia Tech grad, am not thankful for, but we've got to roll with it. Um, His portrait is on the nickel. It's on the late $2 bill. Uh, He was an inventor. Uh, Later in his life, he became a strong opponent of the slave trade, the international slave trade. He's known for lots of things, but one of the things you may not know about Thomas Jefferson is that he made his own Bible. Did you know that? He He made his own Bible. You see, he called himself a Christian in the sense that he liked Jesus' teachings about morality, but he he wasn't so much into all the supernatural stuff in in the Bible. So what he did was literally took a Bible and a razor, and he went through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the accounts of Jesus, and he cut out everything that he didn't like. Just just cut it cut it right out. So uh, and then he he pasted together what he liked, and he called it the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you think I'm making that up, you can go over to the Bible Museum, check it out. They've got a copy there. In this, in this, his own Bible, it records Jesus' birth, but it leaves out any references to angels, uh, Old Testament prophecies, Jesus' miracles, his divinity, and of course, and most significantly, cut out the resurrection. Because in his mind, he thought, this is just, this is Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, no offense if you believe in that, but if, if that's what this is, it's just a bunch of fantasy. So he cut it out 
and he left it out. So this is how his Bible concludes. Listen. Now in the place where he was crucified, speaking of Jesus, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb wherein no man had been laid. There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. And that's how the Jefferson Bible ends. What we're left now with is a dead teacher who had some good things to say that we should, yeah, we should spend time reflecting on and take and choose whatever we want just like Jefferson did. You see, because he didn't think of Jesus as this all-powerful, resurrected Lord as the Bible actually presents him. To Jesus, he was a good man, but he was a dead man. He's no different than Buddha or Gandhi or Muhammad or any other religious leader. He was a great leader and a great teacher, but, but we should just learn from his morality. And that's really about it. Now, you're like, okay, that's a nice little history lesson, which if you know from me, that's really impressive because I don't know much about history. But um, it's really important to ask, was Jefferson right? Is, is supernatural religion just fantasy? Is the resurrection just a myth for weak-minded people who can't really get it together? And they need something outside of themselves to kind of hold them, hold them tight. Is Jesus really just the first century Jimmy Hoffa whose body's hidden somewhere? Probably in New York. Or, or, did Jesus actually rise from the dead like, he's, like, like the Bible claims that he did? And if he rose from the dead, does it really matter? And that's the question that the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians is answering when we get to chapter 15. So again, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be in verses 1 through 28. Now, just so you know, the people that he's writing this letter to, they lived in a city called, anybody want to guess? Corinthians Corinth, very good. So it was a city called Corinth, and he's writing to a church there in that city. And one historian called Corinth the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. This, these people were known for um, being rich. It was a port city. There was a lot of people who would come and go there. But above all things, aside from the immorality, it was also known for being a place where the philosophers dwelled. If you're, if you're wicked smart, you go to Corinth, and there you, you, you spout off your wisdom, and people would come from all over to, to hear it. Well, evidently what had happened was the Corinthian church that had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ began to become enamored with these philosophers, and one of the teachings of the philosophers throughout there was that, you know what, this resurrection stuff, it actually doesn't matter. What really matters is if you believe it in your heart, and it influences you to live a better life. That's what really matters. So some of the church started to doubt whether Jesus actually rose from the dead and whether it mattered at, at all. And this is what Paul is going to be bringing up. Now as we do this, we have one kind of big idea that hangs over this whole text. So all 28 verses kind of summed up in this idea that the resurrection of Jesus is good news that gives life true meaning and eternal hope. The resurrection of Jesus is good news that gives true life, or I'm sorry, gives life true meaning and an eternal hope. Now the ways that we're going to work through this is there's going to be three, um, three sections, okay? So the first is, is that there's good news in the gospel. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. There's good news in the gospel. 
And then verses 12 through 19, we're going to see that there's bad news if there's no resurrection. There's bad news if there's no resurrection. And then finally, uh, and, and most briefly, there's great hope because Jesus is alive. There's great hope because Jesus is alive, verses 20 down through 28. So that's where we're going. Let's jump into the first one here. There's, there's good news in the gospel. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 here, and then we'll, we'll think about what it says. So this is Paul speaking to the church. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, and it should be translated brothers and sisters is a good way to translate it, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ, this is Jesus, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Now there's one word I hope stood out to you as we went through this. It's the word gospel. He talks about it there uh, right out the beginning in verse 1. Uh, we, we remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now does anybody know what the word gospel means? It means good news. That's exactly what it means. And he says that this good news there in verse 3 uh, is of, in, of first importance. Meaning, this, this is an important message. It is the most important message that he could ever deliver and that we could ever consider. This message of good news. Now, what, what makes this good news so good? Well, first of all, we see here that it's a saving message. What makes this message so good is that it is a saving message. Look again at verse 2. I, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if... You hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you have believed in vain. Now, I'm not sure about you, but for the longest time, I had no idea what I needed to be saved from. You see, growing up, I had, I had been to church, but to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really like it. I found it pretty, uh, pretty irrelevant and a bit uh, disinteresting for the way that I thought about life until I understood what the Bible was all about, and God used that to make things click for me. You see, the Bible tells one big story. It's not just a collection of ideas like Jefferson would have suggested, but rather it's, it begins in a garden in the, in, in, the, in the book of Genesis, and it ends in a garden in the book of Revelation, and it tells one big story about what God is doing in history. See, the Bible tells us that, that everything begins with God, and he created Everything. He created the world in which we live, the universe in which our world rests. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created animals. He created people. He created food. He created uh, sex. He created laughter. He created everything. He created a world in which everything he gave was for us to enjoy. 
to fill our hearts with, with love and thankfulness so that we would respond to him in obedience and enjoy him. That's why people are made. But, but guess what? Nobody's done what they're supposed to do. None of us have responded rightly to God. Whether through active rebellion, saying, God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do, or passive indifference, hey, if that works for you, that's fine, but I've got my own thing going. All, all of us, everybody, have, have disobeyed God, have not been thankful for all that he's given to us, have not honored him as he deserves And what God has done is he's given us his word to help expose that in us mercifully by giving us commandments. For instance, he said, you should have no other gods before me. And if we're honest, we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we give our lives to all kinds of other things, and very often we're the ones that life is really all about. We make ourselves gods, as it were. We wouldn't say it like that, but practically that's what it's about. God tells us to not use his, his name in vain. I mean, how flippantly does, I mean, our, it's the OMG culture. Everybody just takes his name flippantly without even thinking about saying his name that it actually, we're invoking the creator. He tells us not to murder, which many of us be like, well, I haven't done that, or maybe some of you have. But Jesus says, I don't want you to feel comfortable with that, that God is going after your heart. He wants us to not even be angry toward others. He says that's a sort of murder in our hearts toward others. We're not committing adultery. To not even lust after someone who's not our our spouse. Or to not covet. To always be thankful all the time for exactly what God gives you without grumbling or complaining. I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody who has done all of that. The Bible tells us that everybody has sinned against God. And it's not just like God has some rule book up in the sky that he's like, oh, you're breaking these rules I've got. But actually, the commands he gives us are descriptions of what he's like. So when we sin, what we're actually doing, it's a personal offense against him that says, I don't care what you're like. I want to do what I want to, to do. And because God is good and because he's holy, he will not allow sin to go unpunished. What that means is that every person who's ever lived will one day stand before God and we will give an account for our lives. Now we've talked about this before, but imagine your past month put up on the screen right here with no editing for everybody to see. I would imagine that none of us would feel comfortable with that. I'm talking about your thoughts, your motives, everything you said about somebody behind, everything on the screen. And that kind of embarrassment that we would feel before other people? Listen, here's the deal. On that day of judgment, you are not compared to me. And I'm not compared to you. We're not compared to one another. We're compared to a God who is perfect, who's never sinned. We're not, we're not compared to some politician or a terrorist or our parents. We're compared to Jesus, the sinless, perfect Son of God. So I've got to ask you, are, are you perfect like Jesus? Have never, ever, ever sinned? Listen, you, me, everybody in this room, everybody in the world, everybody in history is guilty before God. There's nobody that escapes that. And the justice 
that is deserved for sinning against God is an inescapable, non-negotiable sentence of eternal condemnation under God's good judgment. And that, that is what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from sin, yes, death, yes, hell, yes, but ultimately we need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from him because we've offended him. But thankfully, the good news is that God desires none to perish, but for all to come to the saving knowledge of the truth. And that's why he's acted on our behalf. That's why Christians gather together week in and week out to celebrate what God has done for us in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. God became a man. You're like, why would God do that? Because God says there's no way that you can earn your way to heaven, which is what every other religion teaches. The way you get to heaven or nirvana or the next level or whatever it is, is you do good enough and you work your way there. You work your way there. The fact is, none of us can do that. All of us are stained with guilt. So God says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to do it for you. Jesus comes and lives a life without sin of complete perfection. And then he willingly went to the cross. And on the cross, he died in the place of sinners. There, he took the judgment that we deserved. The sinners like you and me, we deserved on the cross. He took it in our place. And then, just like Jefferson believed, he was buried. He was buried in a tomb. And a great stone was rolled to seal it shut. Jesus was dead. But very different than what Jefferson believed, that was not the end. Jesus did what nobody else does when they get in the grave. Three days later, three days after they had laid him to rest, God broke the tomb's seal and the Son of God rose victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. He is alive. Hold on. Did y'all just hear what I said? Like that is, that's either the craziest thing of all time or it's the most amazing thing that has ever happened. It's one of those two and you've got to figure out which one it is. It is good news for anybody who will now turn from their sin and believe in him. They can be saved from God, which he desires to do. Your sins, no matter where you've been or what you've done, can be forgiven. You have a right standing with him. This is a saving message. That's why he says it's good news. It's also a verifiable message before we move on to point two. It's a verifiable message. One of the proofs that Jesus rose from the dead and has the authority to proclaim this good news now is that people saw him after he rose from the dead. Like, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and say, peace out, see you later, right away. He hung out for 40 days and appeared to people and proved himself. Verses 5 through 8, we see here that Jesus appeared to Peter, to the 12, and then to 500 people, which he says, some of them are alive right now. You can go ask him if you want to. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, then to the apostles, and finally to the one who wrote this letter, the apostle Paul. Now, it's amazing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's amazing that he appeared to people, but it's really amazing the kind of people that he appeared to. I mean, if I was God, I would not have come back to these people. I mean, Peter had denied him three times on the night that he was betrayed. 
Can you imagine how shameful and broken Peter must have felt? Yet Jesus came to him. Or the 12 disciples who had all pieced out right when Jesus needed him most, left him alone in his darkest hour. How might they have felt? Out of mercy's reach? And then the, the 500, that, that crowd of 500, it's got to be like this crowd, filled with a bunch of liars and gossips, sexual sinners, people who cheat on their taxes, and then all the self-righteous people who just judged all those other people. Like, that's what this room's filled with. Just be honest. Listen, if you came here to impress people, sorry, the wrong place. Nobody's impressing anybody here. Everybody's bad messed up here. If you're looking for perfect people, it's not here, Okay. This is a room filled with people who are messed up, bad messed up, which is why we need a Savior. And that's the kind of people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to James, his half-brother, who used to mock Jesus before he believed in him, and then he appeared to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, what did he used to do before he was all in for Jesus? He was all in against Jesus, so much so that he used to kill Christians and enjoyed killing Christians. So he, he tried to get them to shut up and stop proclaiming the gospel message that he now loves so much. What that tells us is that this is really good news. And the reason it's good news is because no matter how far you have strayed, how many times you have turned from God, God's arm is not too short to save you. If you are still breathing this morning, there is hope for you. And that's not just the right religious thing to say. That's not some kind of like just Joel Osteen, pep you up, go out better. That's not what this is about. This is real truth. Jesus loves sinners and would come and die for them and then seek them out, which is what's happening right now. As this word goes out, it's intended to help you to see him that you might trust him. So have you ignored Jesus? Have you denied him? Have you mocked him? Have you killed his followers? Listen, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. And he loves to extend that mercy to people like you and like me. This is good news. But remember, this is only good news if Jesus rose from the dead. Because if the resurrection is not true, we just wasted 15 minutes which is what our second point is. There's bad news if there's no resurrection. There's bad news if there's no resurrection. Now, again, if you're here as as somebody who who doesn't believe in Jesus, we're really thankful that you're here. Um, This is the kind of stuff I'm really encouraging you to to hunker down in because when I was, that means listen to, um, pay attention to this part right here because when I was not a Christian and I thought everybody in here, including me, was crazy, these were the kinds of things that I would have looked to and been like, yep, if this isn't true, that kind of stuff is exactly why I'm not a Christian. So I encourage you to listen to this and consider whether the resurrection is indeed true and if so, how it answers all of these objections. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Jesus, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or useless and you are still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, I'm sorry, if verse 9, if in Christ we have hope in this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Evidently, this idea that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead had, had seeped into the Corinthian church. And some of them were saying, well, it doesn't really actually matter whether, whether Jesus died or not. And that error is not something that has, has just was in the first century and doesn't matter. That is something that has persisted ever since. I mean, you can, you can watch every Time magazine or, you know, I mean, every time around Christmas and Easter, they come out with all of these different things. I remember about 10 years ago when I was a, a pastor in Texas, there was a, a news story that ran about somebody who claimed that they had found the bones of Jesus. I'm not sure if you remember that or not, but uh, stories like this come and go, and it's, that's expected. But, but I remember that there was a pastor in the town that I was um, pastoring during that time who responded to that news article with his sermon for Easter entitled, No Bones About It, which is creative uh, uh, title. But the whole premise of the message was this that it doesn't really matter if they found Jesus' bones. Because, because in the end, what really matters is what you believe in your heart about Jesus. What really matters is if his example moves you to live a better life, to be a better neighbor. Now listen, I, that sounds super spiritual. But the question is, is it true? Just because something sounds nice isn't really, isn't really what matters. What matters is if it's true or not. Does it actually matter whether you find the bones of Jesus? Does it really matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, God seems to think so here in verse 12. Um, verse 12, now if Christ has been proclaimed as uh, raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently some in Corinth who previously rooted their hope in the resurrection of Jesus, had bought into this popular philosophy of their day. And the Apostle Paul wants them and us to see that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, there are devastating implications. There's six of them. Here's the first one. Number one, if Jesus hadn't been raised, then Jesus can't save you. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus is no different than any other dead dude. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead, and a dead Savior is no Savior at all. This is another thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion which I'm doing this not to, to bash other religions, but to help to bring clarity in a day and age when everybody says it's all the same. The Bible's very clear that it's not. And if you take any honest Muslim, Christian, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, and line them up here and say, what do you believe? We'll all be really clear that we don't believe the same thing. You see, Jesus is the only, the only one who has ever defeated death. Today, you can visit the tombs of Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Charles Darwin, and so on. But not Jesus, because Jesus is alive. Hebrews 7.25 says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. So having a spiritual relationship with a dead Jesus is actually really useless. and pretty morbid. If Jesus can't defeat death for himself, then he can't help you when you face the grave, which all of us 
will face one day. Secondly, if Jesus hadn't been raised from, uh, hasn't been raised from the dead, then preaching is useless. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Now, some of you have already suspected this about my preaching, and I apologize for that. But the reality is, if Jesus is still in the grave, I'm up here screaming for absolutely no reason at all. We should all be out brunching somewhere, all right? You are sitting here wasting your time listening to me, listening to this word being read, wasting our time praying to some God who's not even there. We should just all be out in the parking lot doing keg stands. This is absolutely useless or empty, as it says here. If if Jesus' tomb is full, then preaching is empty. If Jesus is dead, you're free to tune out everything that the Bible claims, just like you do a flight attendant whenever you're giving all their spiel at the beginning. Just kind of check out. That's what you're free to do right now if if Jesus is in the grave. If Jesus is dead, then preaching is nothing more than simply moral advice or motivational pick-me-ups to make less life yeah, to make life less painful until we die. I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but that's what it is. It's it's just it's meaningless. Thirdly, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then Christians are liars. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then Christians are liars. It's verse 15. We are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying that if Jesus isn't alive, then he, the other apostles, I, and every Christian are a bunch of liars. But not just liars, but the worst kind of liars. Worse than a mechanic lying to you about whether you need a new transmission or not, Worse than a politician lying to you um, when they're out campaigning. Worse than a, a, a false witness in a murder trial. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians lie about God. And there's nothing worse than lying about God. Primarily because it dishonors him, who we're all created to know and love and enjoy. It, it, it smears who he really is and it leads people astray. But secondly, it's, if, 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 there's, if there is a God, then there is, there is an answer about our hopes and our pains and our sorrows. But if there's no God who's powerful even over death, then there's, there's no answer for evil in this world. There's no hope for pain. There's no better place to go when we die. If Jesus is dead, Christians lie about God. And they deceive people about the the most important issues imaginable. If Jesus is dead, then there's no God worth trusting. And people who say so are liars. And they should be silenced. Which should help us as Christians have compassion and patience with, with people who, who despise our message. Because many atheists or agnostics or, or people who have a more secular a worldview who hear the things that we claim, if it's not true, then it is indeed oppressive. And it is indeed um, yeah, bad for people. Which is why many people get so angry with the ideas that Christians espouse. It's one of the reasons. Well, fourthly, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then your faith is useless. 
then your faith is useless, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, faith is the most fundamental part of being a Christian. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Anyone who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. So if you want to please God, you've got to believe he's actually there and you've got to believe that following him is actually worth it. What that means is that we believe that following God's commands gives the greatest joy that life has to offer. This is why some Christians step away from successful careers to move to dangerous lands and tell people about Jesus. This is why Christians keep following Jesus even when it means that friends or family members would would mock them or misunderstand their faith. This is why Christians, even this morning, most Christians around the world gather under the threat of some sort of oppression, possibly even up to death. Right now, most Christians around the world do not have the luxury of just sitting here and thinking about whether the temperature is right and how much longer this guy's going to go. That's not what most Christians are doing around the world. They gather and worship because they actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that changes everything. But he says here that if Jesus is dead, faith is useless, and you are still in your sins, and there is no hope for you. Fifthly, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then dead Christians stay dead. If Christ has not been raised, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I remember right after I became a Christian, so I became a Christian when I was 21, and then became a pastor when I was 25, which was probably too quick, but I became a pastor when I was 25, and I had never really been around death very much. And I remember early on in that first year, I did a funeral. I had not been to many funerals, but I was performing a funeral. And you ever have one of those moments where life is kind of surreal and everything kind of slows down and you see things and it just makes an impression on you? Well, that's, that's what it was like for me doing this. So this, we were in this graveyard and the graveyard was up, there was, it was kind of like a, a coliseum where there's, there's, there was a hillside right there and we were down near the bottom and I was standing there with a Bible and um, we're lowering this, this saint down into the into this hole in the ground, and as I looked up, I just saw tombstones everywhere. And I didn't hear voices, angels didn't visit, none of that mess, but, but in my mind, it was like the tombstones were just laughing. We win again. We're taking another one of yours down to the grave, and they never come out of here. And again, I didn't, didn't hear that, but that's that what was going through my mind as I, as I, as I saw this, this scene. Well, what the resurrection of Jesus does is it punches that straight in the throat. And it says, sit down, be quiet. Because the Christian knows that death has a date with the sovereign Lord who rose from the dead. And on that day, Jesus will open every single grave and resurrect the bodies of all those who have ever trusted in him. They have now fallen asleep in Christ, which is, you have to understand, death is not cessation, where everything stops. It is separation, where your spirit separates from your body. 
And if you are a believer, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. If you're not a believer, your spirit goes to a place the Bible calls Hades, which is, a, is basically a waiting room for the day of judgment. And then when Jesus returns, he gathers all bodies up and brings everybody before him to be judged. One day he will indeed return. But Paul says, all of that hope is a fairy tale if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Dead Christians stay dead. Graveyards forever remain trophy cases for death's victories. Coffins become timeless tombs and headstones serve as billboards boasting of sin's strength. If Jesus has not been raised, then graves that swallow up believers will, for, will never give them back and death wins. Sixthly, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then Christians waste their life. If, if Jesus has not been raised, then Christians waste their life, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, this for me was really what it came down to in regards to rejecting Christianity. Most of my high school years and my college years were dedicated to one thing, and that was somehow finding pleasure. Everything for me revolved around what could I drink, what could I smoke, what could I snort, what, could, what kind of relationship could I get into, gambling, spending. It didn't matter. For me, my goal in life was to have as much fun as was humanly possible. That was, that was, my, that was basically my, my goal. And to be honest, I loved my life as a non-Christian. I loved my sin. Now, there, there were days of regret, many of them, where I woke up when the, the music had faded and the buzz had wore off. But for me, the answer was just party harder the next day, and that'll go away. Until the middle of my junior year, when a friend named Dave came and, and came to a party that I threw and made a bold stand and talked to me about Jesus. Now, at first, him talking to me about Jesus really irritated me. Um, but I was intrigued by it because I saw something in him that I didn't have. He had a peace and a joy that I couldn't find anywhere. He told me what Jesus had done for him and that if I would follow Jesus, that he would forgive me of my sins, which I knew I needed, I needed something to get me right. But then he told me, Jesus can give you a new life. And I remember telling him, I don't want a new life. I like my life the way that it is. If I become a Christian, I'm going to miss out on what life is really all about. But deep down, you know what? I couldn't escape it. I knew there was something true in what he was saying. So I started reading the Bible, which he encouraged me to do. I mean, I would, I would read it all the time. I would slip away from parties and go read it. And one day I came to these words of Jesus in Mark eight thirty four. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the good news, you will find true life. That is what Jesus calls everyone to hear. He wants you to surrender your life to him. To turn away from your sin, whatever sin that may be, and all the comforts and security that you associate with that life, he wants you to turn from that, which is really trusting in some sort of idol rather than God, turning from that and turning to him, and by his grace, to be born again 
to become a new person. Not a perfect person. I am not a perfect person. I'm far from it. I'm very much still, there's under construction hanging on me all the time. But John Newton, I think, summarizes really well how I I think about my life as a Christian. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that is absolutely just you talking yourself into feeling better about a hard life. So much so that if there's anybody in the world who should be pitied, it's Christians. Your creeds, they just, they just cripple us. All of our songs are a bunch of silliness about some kind of imaginary friend. All of resisting sin is a waste. All of our giving money to missions is both arrogant to impose our views on them, and it's a waste of resources. And for those who would lay down their life for Jesus, absolute insanity. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then suffering for an imaginary Savior is really the most pathetic waste of a life that you could have. Which is why he says down in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die. If we're all going to die, and that's it, we might as well just forget Jesus, forget religion, and get the most out of this Titanic before it sinks. Christians waste their life. Unless he rose from the dead. Which he did rise from the dead which changes everything. Number three, there's great hope because Jesus is alive. There's great hope because Jesus is alive. Now before we get into that, I just want to be, just want to say, for those of you in case you're you're visiting and you've never been to a church where you talk openly about questions or doubts or that kind of stuff, I want you to know this is a good church to do that. We talk openly about real things. We don't just say that, oh, you can't ask those questions or don't bring that up. We actually think it's helpful to investigate what we believe because none of us want to be duped. We all want to know if this is really what God says or not. So we encourage you, if you have questions, please stick around. We want to talk about it. Thirdly, there's great hope because Jesus is alive. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here is the hope that God gives. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the, this is the good news that the angels said to that, the, the women that, in that garden on that first Easter morning. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Listen, y'all, the tomb is empty. The grave is empty. On that first resurrection morning, God performed the greatest miracle that the world has ever known. Jesus was raised from the dead. And God didn't do that just to like perform the ultimate trick. So everybody be like, oh wow, that's a really good trick, God, thanks. But, but this is actually the initiation of God's eternal plan to fix the brokenness of the world in which we live. See, everybody came in here this morning. Some of you dressed up. I wore a suit, which is funerals, weddings, and Easter, okay? This is the times that I do this, okay? 
We, we, we can come in and everybody can pretend for however long this service lasts. And then you can walk out. But the fact is that there is brokenness everywhere. Everybody in here knows it. If Jesus rose from the dead, though, there is hope that overcomes every bit of brokenness and curse that is in this world. First of all, so there's three things here in, in, in bringing this to the, 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 the conclusion that he has for us. The first thing we need to notice here is that Jesus reserves, I'm sorry, he reverses the curse to raise all who trust in him. Jesus reverses the curse to raise all who trust in him. Look at verse 21. For as by a man, Adam, came uh, death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Here's what he's saying. The Bible teaches that Adam, the first man, sinned against God. And because of that, all people are now under the curse of sin. It's Part, yeah, part of the curse is, this is why you don't have to teach, this is why you don't have to teach anybody to lie. We just do it naturally, right? So I think it's okay to tell the story. I usually don't put my kids on blast, but he's 18 months, so as long as he didn't listen to this, it'll be fine. Simeon, the other day, is sitting in his little high chair, and he, he had his shirt off, right, because he's, he's going in when he eats. That's how we do it. And uh, somehow he got a marker, so we look away, and we look back, and he had straight painted his whole chest with a marker. He has the marker. He sets it down there, and we look at him, and we say, Simeon, did you write on yourself? He looked down, looked at the marker, and looked at us and goes, mm-mm. <laughs> Listen, y'all, we did not teach him that. <laughs> they, just, they just born that way, all of us. Everybody's born with a bent toward hiding from the light. And as we grow up, we just learn how to do that better, or we think we do. We just learn how to mask it a little differently. That's in us. That's part of the curse. It's also the reason that there is physical death. Part of the curse of of Adam's sin is physical death. That's why there's graveyards and funerals and tears shed over loved ones who've died. But this is why Jesus came. He came to reverse the curse. And the way he did it is he went to the cross and there on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. The scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ went and he became the curse so that we who are cursed might be liberated from it. So that in this life, we might not be in bondage to sin. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but we're freed from loving it. We're freed from not knowing what it's doing to us. We have, we have eyes wide open and we now war against it. And then we can die without fear. Because we know that Jesus has defeated the grave. And if he defeated the grave, then he can bring us up from the grave as well. This is what Jesus did. The first Adam dug a grave through his rebellion, but Christ, the second Adam, empties the graves through his resurrection. This is the promise that Christians live with and die with. Jesus rose as the first fruits, and when he returns, he will bring forth a harvest of eternal life for all those who have believed, those who, as he says here, who belong to him. 
which include all Old Testament saints, which if you're ever wondering how people in the Old Testament get saved, they saved by grace through faith in the one who would come. They're saved on credit. We're saved by grace through faith in the one who did come, saved on debit. Jesus paid it all at the cross. Everybody's always saved the same way. This is what he came to do. When he returns, all those who believe in him will be brought up with him. Christians will not stay dead. He will raise them to eternal life. And that's good news. But the resurrection and the return of Jesus is not good news for everyone. Because the resurrection also ensures, secondly, that Jesus will destroy all his enemies. Jesus will destroy all his enemies. Look at verse 24 through 26. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible teaches that all of history is moving to a moment. For some, it will be a resurrection that will be followed by eternal life, but for others, it will be a resurrection unto eternal judgment. Jesus said in John 5, 28, a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will be raised or raised to be condemned. This is a sober but essential part of understanding the truths that God teaches. A day is coming when everyone who is not trusted in Christ will be brought before a good and holy God and they will give an account. And if they have no one to stand as an advocate for them, if they have no one to stand between them and a holy God, they will be condemned forever. Justice will be served in God's universe. Which, which by the way, I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to think about why in our day is there such a cry for justice? We see it in so many different arenas, whether it be the Me Too movement or discussions with uh, po- police using force or whether it be corrupt courts or whether it be uh, politicians, that are, wh- whatever it may be, in churches and wh- whatever, things that are where injustice is happening. Why? is justice, why do we cry out for it? Because it does not fit into an evolutionary worldview. An evolutionary worldview says you consume the weak so that you can progress. That's evolution. Justice and compassion have no, no room in that worldview. There's just no room for them. It makes absolutely no sense. Might it be that the reason that we all long for justice so deeply is because we're created in the image of a God who will render justice. And deep down we know something's gotta make things right. Jesus' resurrection proves that one day all wrongs will be right. And this is God's mercy for you to hear it before that final day. Which brings us third and finally, that Jesus will complete God's saving plan. Jesus will complete God's saving plan. Verse 27 and 28. God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he 
is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. What? Hold on. Let me explain to you. What he's doing for you is he is giving you a glimpse into the eternal plan of the Trinitarian God. God the Father created this world in such a way that his mercy, the mercy of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, could be put on full display with evil as the backdrop and, and, and people made in his image as, as the people who, who live now, every single thing in life mattering, Jesus entering in, dying, rising from the dead, extending mercy, sinners being brought out of darkness into light, called together as his people to be kept forevermore until the end when those people who have trusted are brought before the Father and the Father enjoys them forever in an eternal kingdom in which the Son is the forever interceding Savior and we are all indwelt with the Spirit of God. I, I know that sounds deep and, 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 and amazing and there are, and, and weird, and there are, there are depths there that it will take eternity to understand. But the key thing to notice here is that what, what is happening through the resurrection of Jesus, it is the, it is the, it begins waves it, is, it begins the reverberation that sends out through all of history, saving people until that day when there will be a people who will know that God is all in all and will enjoy him forever. In a land where there will be no more crying or tears or pain, where there will be no more evil, where there will be no more betrayal, no more apologies, no more struggles with sin, but we'll be liberated once and for all from sin, Satan, death, from our flesh not meaning our bodies, we will have bodies forevermore in that eternal land, but it won't be the struggle. We will be liberated to know him and love him and love one another forevermore. And everything that rejected him, Satan, the demons, and all who followed the tempter, they will forever be away from his presence. Which brings us to our conclusion, which is this. We've got to figure out if this is true or not. If you're here as a non-Christian, the very most important thing that can happen for the rest of this day and in the days ahead and the weeks and the months and the years ahead is for you to evaluate whether or not Jesus actually is who he says he is and whether or not he actually rose from the dead. Because if he did, it changes everything about life. Every motive, every thought, every action matters. I just want you to know this is God's mercy for you to hear this before that last day. I believe you will indeed see this scene again one day as evidence, either as evidence that would stand against you or it would be part of the evidence as to how God worked in your life as to why you would indeed be forgiven and brought into eternal life. So if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't turn away, but turn to him. And cry out for mercy. After the service, any of our members who are sitting around here would love to talk with you about this. We think there's nothing more important. And for those of us who are Christians, we've got to figure out whether we really believe this or not. Because if this is true, then it changes everything. You are now liberated to suffer in such a way that doesn't make us enjoy suffering, but can see that there is a God who works in and through suffering. That we suffer with hope, 
Do we be willing to risk everything that we have and everything that we are to make the name of Jesus known both at home and abroad? There are people who don't have to fear the grave because Jesus defeated the grave and is raised and we can be certain that he will raise us as well. This frees us to be a people who risk everything for him and live lives that on that last day be forever worth it. So my encouragement to all of us is to look 10,000 years from now in our mind's eye and to see everything in light of that day. And there we will find the resurrected Lord who will give you grace in this day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we say thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear these things Um, not just as empty words, but as what they really are, the very words of of you. We pray for people wherever they are in this journey that you would help them to have heard something today that they would cling to, whether they be uh, people who know you or don't know you. Would you help them to see you more clearly? God, give us help and give us hope. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for all the sweet joys of life. In the name of Jesus, amen.